This Spotlight edition of the Security Ledger podcast is sponsored by Complex. Your business is more complex than ever. You need tools to tame that complexity. Complex's advanced algorithms, simulations, and machine learning tools help the world's most demanding firms solve the toughest challenges in cybersecurity, insurance underwriting, and finance. Find out what Complex can do for you at Complex, that's Q-O-M-P-L-X dot com. Welcome to this Spotlight edition of the Security Ledger podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this edition of the podcast... I had a, a client of mine who, who said to me, my perimeter is now 10,000 home offices. There's been much speculation about what the long-term impact of the COVID-19 pandemic will be on the private sector. Already, business leaders and investors are betting that the forced mass experiment in remote work will produce long-term changes in how companies manage their workforce. But one byproduct of the shift to remote work is already clear, a marked increase in cyber attacks on corporate environments. Among the most scary of those attacks are so-called human-directed ransomware attacks, which have sidelined sophisticated organizations ranging from the fintech startup Finastra to DMI, a cybersecurity contractor that counts a U.S. space agency, NASA, as a customer. What's to be done? Our guest in this Spotlight edition of the podcast, Andy Jakewith, says that COVID is exposing some rifts in corporate security. While the ways in which organizations deploy and use technology has changed dramatically in the last two decades, the ways in which they measure and account for cyber risk have not. In this conversation, Andy and I talk about how COVID has highlighted larger issues around cyber resilience. We also talk about Andy's new company, Complex, where he is Chief Information Security Officer, and which is working to improve the ways that companies instrument cybersecurity with an eye to improve both cyber defense and risk management. Hi, I'm Andy Jakewith. I'm the Chief Security Officer of Complex and also the General Manager of the CyberBU. Andy, welcome to Security Ledger Podcast. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. It's really nice to be with you today. It's nice to have you. Andy, I brought you on because you, you've got a super interesting background. I, I met you back in the day when you were really in the, uh, in the analyst community. Give us a sort of uh, Andy Jakewith origin myth, if you will. Well, the, the origin myth, I think, extends way back uh, into the deep, dark past, right? When I was a wee lad graduating college and stuff, I had a turn in the transportation business for a while. So I worked for a subsidiary of FedEx and did general purpose IT work and, and was then over at Cambridge Technology Partners in Boston. Uh, and, and I got a tap on the shoulder by my boss who was contacted by some VCs who were starting a, uh, a new company. And that company turned out to be at stake. And it was sort of the original hackers and suits marriage of uh, you know folks like Mudge and, and Weld and Dill and all those guys from the loft and folks that um, were, had more of a consulting background, which I did, and, and other folks like Dave Goldsmith and Window Snyder and, and Andy Schmidt and you know, the list goes on and on. Alex Stamos. So we had a good time. Um, just at, It at was the, like the Ur company of the information security industry. Oh, yeah. I mean, and like, and, and a couple of the folks I've worked with subsequently, like, so Matt Levine, for example, Royal Hansen, uh, they were early consultants. Royal, of course, is now the chief security officer of Google. Uh, Maddie and I worked together in Royal at Goldman for a while. So post uh, at stake, I was an analyst. And then even after the analyst job, I was a uh, CTO of a managed security services provider called Silver Sky, which had a successful uh, outcome. We were 
bought by BAE Systems. And, and after that, I, I wound up moving into investment banking. So I worked for Phil Venables at Goldman Sachs as, the, as a managing director for analytics and risk measurement. And that was a, a really interesting job, uh, what, what we call a first-line job in security. So um, with you know, direct oversight for things like external audit, assurance for our quarterly SOCs and, and SSA 18 processes and the like. So got my hands on a lot, a lot of data. And that tied pretty nicely with some work I'd done earlier in the career around trying to quantify uh, risk and security control performance. Even though back in the day, we weren't really thinking of it in those terms. It was more of a, can we measure this thing called security, right? So it's been, it's been a fun career uh, so far. I, I've really enjoyed all the different places I've worked um, because they have different problem sets. You know, at, at, when you work at an, an investment bank, you're dealing with really big problems and companies that have a lot of resources to spend. And you have a really good idea of what, what great really looks like. And you can take those lessons and immediately apply them in other contexts. So, you know, I'm, we're, we're bringing some of, that, some of that culture, some of that thinking into what we're doing here at Complex as well. So it's been, been a lot of fun to do. And of course, it, it just means that when I talk to our customers and prospects, we usually have an instant affinity because I've been in their seats. It's not normally what you what you what you can do when you're uh, you know just a product weenie uh, working at a product company. Not, yeah, not that there's anything wrong with that, but you know it's it's a different kind of conversation. What do you think your your time you know again at, at J.P. Morgan and uh, you know working obviously at the kind of apex of the technology buyer pyramid? You know what what perspective did it give you, or what did you learn uh, kind of sitting in that seat? Yeah, in general, you you know what a really well evolved program looks like, and you're never perfect. But you know, some of the the banks are among the most regulated entities on the planet. There's a lot of oversight externally, and of course, you've got a lot of internal layers of oversight as well. And I don't mean layers in a bad way, but I mean more in the sense of checks and balances. So you've got a, a most of the most of the institutions these days follow what's called a three lines of defense model. So the, the front lines, the, the risk-taking parts of the business, the business units directly, as well as the, uh, typically the chief security officer, is the first line of defense, right? Their job is to incorporate risk management into all their processes. And, and in the cyberspace, obviously, that's quite evident, right? So your SOC functions, for example, are all considered first line. Um, your, your, uh, your active directory or IT security functions uh, your, you know, your firewalls, your desktop security, your EDR platforms, uh, your segmentation, all your network controls, all those typical things are considered first line. The, the second line is where you start to see slightly more horizontal risk management. You, t- you tend to see compliance. For example, are we breaking any laws? Uh, are we implementing all the obligations that the regulators and oftentimes customers expect us to, right? And the third line, of course, is internal audit. These, these are all um, meant to reinforce each other. They're not perfect, of course, but it does give you a view of how much time and effort and, and money, frankly, is spent on uh, having controls that are well-structured, well-thought-out, um, that are consistently applied, and that give you a good, a good foundation to know that your risks are really being measured and managed effectively. Now, these things don't always work perfectly. It's a little bit like Sisyphus. You got to roll the rock up the hill every year, every quarter. Uh, and there's a relentless impatience to be better, right? And that's the thing that I think is is most striking about some of the institutions I've been affiliated with is there. There's a you're, you're never done, 
And I think that desire to continuously improve is really a, is very affirming in the security space. It doesn't feel like drudgery or work. It always feels like there's a new challenge, a new frontier that you need to, to look at, to squint at, to get under control, to wrestle to the ground. Uh, and eventually move on to the next thing. And you know, there there's big thematic things that are happening at all these institutions. You know, right now in the in the financial space, what's sometimes called cyber fragility or cyber resilience, which is kind of the melding of business resilience and cyber. Right. So that's a thing that everybody's wrestling with right now. Uh, and it's not just do you have a BCP plan. It's really everything. It's how do you um, how do you run a reliable plant that can withstand a withstand outage or a cyber attack, uh, and be done in a way that is consistent, that is um, aligned and attuned to business sensibilities, and and that's way different than I've got a BCP plan. I executed it like last year, um, and it may or may not be stale. Right? It's taking a really business process centric view. So. But what I would say is you take a lot of these lessons and you try to apply them in other places that you work and with the client conversations that you have. So it, it just gives you a different view. And uh, I love it. I mean, this, this field is so great. It never gets old. It never gets boring. And there's always a new wrinkle. Well, I mean, what's interesting is, you know, you, you literally wrote the book on measurable security and security metrics. Uh, what, I mean, it must be 15 years ago now. Uh, yeah, don't remind me, man. Um, I've got less hair and I'm grayer than I used to be when I wrote it. Uh, yeah, there's a bunch of things I would probably do differently. My wife tells me I need to write a sequel. Um, I'm not sure she knows what she's asking for there. I, I think the book has weathered pretty well, right? Um, in, in many respects. And when I wrote it, it didn't anticipate a couple of things. The first is that we'd have such a strong emphasis on control-driven compliance, right? Think about what's happened in the last 15 years. You've got stuff like the CIS Top 20, the NIST Cybersecurity Framework, NIST 863, 853, NIST, you know, the ISO 27000 has really become a fixture. All these things, you know, so there were precursors of it, but you didn't see uh, an enumeration, uh, you know, a specificity of the specific controls you needed, right? Whereas now it's an accepted part of the assurance landscape, the you know, SOC 2s, SSA-18s, your external audit stuff that you need to do when you're a large company, your representations that you make if you're a publicly traded company for, for SOX compliance, for example, all those boil down to having well-controlled processes, controls really, that you can show evidence for. And so the, the book didn't really anticipate controls as a thing. But many of the measurements and metrics in the book, and there's like 200 and change of them in the book, uh, have actually weathered pretty well. And you can map them pretty cleanly to many of the things that companies are trying to do from a quantitative assurance standpoint. So that's weathered well. The stuff that, that I don't think I foresaw, and frankly, I think it's hard to see how anybody could have foreseen the incredible rise of cloud services and the, the hollowing out of IT. I think we saw some of this. But you know, in the in the last fifteen years, we've seen AWS, you know, come out of nowhere from what was a, a really nice, clever way of helping automate their sales of books into something that was offered on the open market and has largely replaced many things, many traditional data center operations. You know, a complex, for example, we are almost one hundred percent virtual, right? We own, I think, we own one server that goes under a desk. 
and it got moved to a colo because, you know, the desk isn't a great place for it. <laughs> and that's it, really. You know, we got switchers, routers, we got the Wi-Fi access points, we have building control system stuff. But in terms of like real, like real compute, you don't own any of it. And many companies that are born natively in the cloud are that way. And that has some important implications on how you measure. So, you know, it's it's kind of an article of faith and security that you've got asset management systems, right? And you gotta you gotta know what your assets are and you gotta manage them and that asset inventory needs to be complete. Well, in the in the age of dynamic immutable ephemeral, which is kind of the rallying cry for the DevOps revolution, those assets aren't guaranteed to be here tomorrow. And so that's a different measurement paradigm entirely than, than keeping a static list of assets that you are going to scan continuously or that you are going to config manage into submission, for example. So it's, it's a different thing entirely. And I would say the, you know, the, in, in terms of like, if I look back at, at some of the measurement concepts there, you've got to take a slightly different view on how you measure them. And I've started to sketch some of that out in you know security metrics the sequel and in some of the stuff i've written publicly you know what it really comes down to is you're you're anchoring yourself not against physical assets but against a chain of custody that allows you to demonstrate that these ephemeral assets that you may have created or are seeing torn up and destroyed are coming are coming from a known pedigree uh, you know it's sort of like it's like painting right like you know if you look at somebody who's maybe a little more prolific like salvador dali you know, with thousands of artifacts, some of which was just pure crap to generate money. But if you know what his style was, you know what it, what his art production style was, you almost don't need to have a complete inventory of it. You just need to know that, show enough, I have a way of demonstrating that this thing came from his mind, made its way onto canvas or, or a piece of photo paper. And we know that it is genuinely his. There's a, a lineage, a chain that you can draw from your, uh, from your designs to your AMIs, to your config manifests. And then out to your um, control structures that show that you generated assets in a consistent way, and that you can trace them all the way back to the to the control to the designed, engineered image that you produced originally. I think that's really where the future of of asset management is, and 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 the future of asserting control over these things. If you can do those, you've got a better control structure. Uh, but that's very very different than than what we talked about 15 years ago. So, and I think everybody's grappling with this right now. You're listening to a spotlight edition of the Security Ledger podcast, sponsored by Complex. And it really, you know, it really has profound implications for the information security sector because obviously, as you go out there and walk, uh, you know, the floor at uh, the RSA conference or something, um, you know, most of the companies there uh, grew up, uh, evolved to secure those legacy environments, uh, not not the environments that a, that a startup like Complex has, has created for itself. You know, I think everybody's grappling with this right now, even in the vendor space. Like, I'll give a shout out to our friends at Tenable, for example. You know, Meet and, and his team, we use Tenable ourselves, right? We use that for, for Vuln scanning internally to look at our assets. And, and uh, there's a, a really cool feature called keyless authentication. But what that allows you to do is to dynamically scan assets that may pop up in, for example, an AWS environment. So it'll basically tail your cloud trail logs to see when new machine images pop up. And when they do, like it updates your inventory, right? So I think just being more, more savvy of these cloud environments is the next evolution for tooling. And, and uh, you know, in the, in the Tenable case, for example, that, that's a neat capability, right? It's exploiting some of these native features of cloud to make the, allow the product evolve. And of course, you know, Nessus, which it was based on, was around even when I got into the biz. So, you know, that's a that's a 25-year-old product. 
it's nice to see a, a product like that build some new capabilities that allow it to continue to evolve and, and embrace some of the new uh, dynamism we're seeing in the compute world. So uh, it's pretty cool. You know, it's really fascinating. I had somebody else kind of point this out to me recently. I mean, you know, in the, in the context that we're in right now with you know, the COVID pandemic and the, this huge shift in, in working from home, and obviously that's caused a fair amount of uh, dislocation. It's engendered a lot of, you know, huge jump in, in cyber threats and attacks, you know, playing on fear and anxiety about the, about the virus and so on. But, but at another level, kind of that glass half full you realize that, you know, if if COVID had come along, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, I'm not sure that the business community could have adapted in the way that it, in fact, it's almost certain that they could not have, you know, we, we couldn't have bought yeah. and deployed the physical infrastructure to support work from home for millions of employees, you know, companies could not have extended their, you know, applications and, and business critical systems out to employees in their home offices. It just, you know, the, the, the capability and the infrastructure didn't exist to do it. And now it does. It's a huge success story for this transition that's been happening, you know, slowly over the it's last- It's amazing, year. isn't it? I, it I is, know there, yeah. there's a certain species of company that was already pretty savvy and pretty well set up for this. Uh, you know, most of the institutions that I've, I've been at have kind of well-funded client compute plants. You know, they're often VDI based. For, so you don't, really need a physical machine. All you need is a kind of a video terminal, really, like a, a terminal server type login. And and they're not really missing a beat on this. Yeah, sure, you got to make sure you get enough bandwidth from your providers and and that's important. But w- they were already kind of capable of this already. And I know in our case, we haven't missed a beat. You know, we, we have some, we've put some strain on some of our providers, but for video conferencing and stuff like that, and I know that's all gone through the roof, but this is like the world's biggest BCP test. And it's a, it's, it's a real, it's an incredible validation of the fact that we've, you know, that, that bandwidth is, uh, you know, there's a lot of bandwidth, a lot of services, you get some strain, but, but for the most part, it's actually surprising how well it's worked. Yeah. It's really around the edges, you know, that, that you're encountering strain at all, or, you know, I mean, yes, there, there are disruptions and, you know, uh, some activities, but by and large, the story is one of, of amazing kind of resilience and, and, and continuity. For many, many companies, obviously not all. I mean, obviously, as we as we know, many people, you know, the, the jobs they do require them to be physically present. There, there is, of course, a dark side, though, Paul. Right there, the, and that sets up the transition perfectly to the next topic of conversation, which is, yeah, that this wonderful, amazing technology has also extended the web of third party and and contractor and supplier relationships that companies have. And in its own way, engendered all kinds of new risks that the companies are really struggling to deal with. And the data point I would point to is the ransomware attack that took place and affected a key supplier of NASA, the space agency that, uh, that just shot a, a capsule with astronauts uh, for the first time in a decade into space to, to the uh, International Space Station. And lo and behold, uh, the uh, astronauts were barely on the space station before the doppelpamer ransomware gang uh, let the world know that uh, DMI, which is a managed IT and cybersecurity company that counts NASA as a customer, had been a victim of uh, their ransomware. It does raise this question. DMI is just the latest in in a string of what you would assume are very sophisticated, very technologically savvy companies who find themselves a victim of these sophisticated ransomware outbreaks. 
And I guess I'd ask you, what's going on here? How can a how can a company that's a managed services and managed and cybersecurity services company end up the victim of doppel payment ransomware? Yeah, it's no, it's not a stretch to say that the COVID world we're in, where we do have everybody working from home, uh, is creating some gaps uh, in the security posture of companies that are making it easy for these kind of attacks to take breaks. I, I had a, a client of mine who, who said to me, my perimeter is now 10,000 home offices. I thought that was a great, a great way of putting it. And, and, you know, just to be concrete about this, right? When, when I was at one of the, one of the institutions, we, we had a policy uh, around blocking websites. And you rely on your, on your web proxies to filter out known bad websites. But one of the other features we had uh, that, frankly, created a little bit of tension sometimes with the revenue generating business units in the firm was anything that was unclassified was blocked by default, right? And you could speed bump it. So you could say, do you really know what you're doing? But what that barrier was in place partly to prevent known bad websites like fast flux websites that, get set, that are often set up for some of these ransomware campaigns and these command and control networks. You wouldn't be able to call out, and frankly, a in, you know a, a bot that might have gotten lodged in your network because of a phishing attack, for example, wouldn't really be able to call out uh, without hitting the speed bump, right? And so this was very much by design. Now, if you're in a home office, you don't have Blue Coat or Palo Alto in your home office, like you just don't, and so you don't have some of those internal policy controls, right? So it really places a stress on making sure that if you've got an EDR client on your on that machine that it's working and running or if you've got endpoint controls that do blocking at the endpoint that those need to be working right so i i think just because we don't have as as good web controls in people when they're in a home office environment i think that facilitates and makes easier some of these ransomware attacks so i think that's that's kind of part one to it the second thing in general is uh i i think it is uh, you know, there's probably a bit of human nature here where you might perhaps be a little a little laxer in some of your day-to-day habits, even on company-issued equipment than you might be if you're in a physical office, you know, and, and that could be, you know, things that are benign like shopping uh, or, or other things that might set you up to get into a more risk, slightly more risky posture than you might be if you're in inside a physical office with, you know, colleagues and bosses looking over your shoulder and things like that. So I think those two things feed into it. And you know what that really means is we've all got to be more vigilant for uh, for some of these risks as they come over the transom, and uh, and that includes ransomware, which is nasty, terrible, devastating. Uh, you know, burn the house down kind of stuff uh, when it really gets in and, and gets stuck in a network. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we're also seeing is that you know not all ransomware attacks are. Uh, equal. And while there are definitely certain, there are certainly like opportunistic ransomware infections, you know, the, you know, you click on the attachment or link and it infects your system and, and, you know, immediately kind of spiders out on, on the network and creates a lot of noise and havoc. These attacks suggest that there are, you know, what Microsoft's referred to as these kind of human-operated ransomware that are taking a very different attack with their victims, which is much more akin to the sort of APT style. Uh, talk talk a little bit about that, and you know what what this is exposing, I guess, about you know the the sort of state of play out there in the in the enterprise space. This is a tough subject, right? Because the 
this is, I think, what makes things different with some of these campaigns. And that's what they are, really. They're campaigns that are targeting a company different from your, um, from the ones that are designed to, for example, just steal industrial secrets. You know, the APT campaigns were really about stealing industrial secrets. The ransomware campaigns are slightly different, right? They, these are, they're ransoms, right? You, you got to pay up. And if you don't pay up, your assets get fried. And we, we saw this with uh, Maersk, for example, where there was, this was uh, part of the NotPetya ransomware campaign. And, and that's, um, that campaign bundled tools like Mimikatz uh, into, the, uh, into the executable bundles to extract AD credentials uh, that would allow an attacker to gain admin access. And once you gain domain administrator access, you can pretty much spread everywhere. And in that particular case, it led to the, and, and the quote that I recall uh, from this was, 100% destruction of anything based on Microsoft that was attached to the network. Not to pick on poor Microsoft, right? This is just to say that like this was the, the target vector and it crushed everything. And uh, it was, uh, I think it was a, th- you know, they, I think they took a, like a $300 million charge. You know, that's, that's, what is that? That's, that's three followed by eight zeros, right? That's a lot of money. And it basically, and, and these are not, you know, Marisk is, they're a shipping line, right? They're not, they're not an investment bank. It's not the easiest thing in the world to recover from. And so uh, I think what's different about the attacks is that they're, they're actually designed to be destructive uh, as opposed to, you know, embarrassing, which is really what a confidentiality breach is. This one is, is a really, is a real productivity and, and asset destroying kind of campaign. And I think that's the thing that, that you worry about here. And, and so for our, for, you know, in our case, what we really look out for and what we counsel our clients to pay attention to is to harden their directory infrastructure in such a way that you can really detect these precursors. And what's, I think what the common point of a lot of these campaigns is your goal is to, you know, it's, it's like the old t-shirt got root Right, that's what this is. Your your objective is to get the the equivalent of root in your in your directory, which is domain admin. That's what you want, right? And so we advise customers to instrument their directories in such a way that they can detect when somebody has elevated access improperly, perhaps by forging credentials or other means, where we can detect that elevation, that improper elevation, and can then take action, right? Which is which is you know, hey, your house is about to be on fire. Like this is not a, you know, some idiot emailing a spreadsheet to their home laptop so they can work out on the plane. Like don't care, right? That's not this, that's not the issue we're talking about. This is a, you are about to have a five alarm fire that is going to burn down your infrastructure, right? That's, that's what we want customers to, to be savvy to. And so that's, uh, th- that I think is the key is getting your finger right on those critical choke points that allow you to know exactly uh, when, frankly, that worst case scenario is happening. And, and I mean, I guess the problem for, you know, for the sort of upstream companies, whether it's NASA or JP Morgan uh, or, you know, uh, Citibank or whomever is, you know, you today more than ever are, are reliant on these uh, third third party suppliers and, and service service providers and, and um 
And you, while you may attest to the security of your own environment, it's very difficult to know about the security of theirs. And we've seen both, again, this NASA attack is, is one. Uh, Finastra was another one uh, with big impacts in the financial services, uh, you know, kind of clearing clearinghouse uh, that got hit by, I think, the Ryuk ransomware. How do you manage that tricky problem of now being in a position of not only needing to attest to the security of your own environment, but also assessing your exposure to security risks that you don't know about within your service providers? This, this is fundamentally a hard problem. It doesn't really matter how big and sophisticated you are. Nobody's ever satisfied with, with how well they're looking at third-party risk. Um, it's a big deal, and you know the. I think the the common feature I've seen in in companies that do this better than others is that you integrate security and risk assessment into your purchasing criteria, and that you're very aggressive on a monitoring basis. You know, based on a risk adjusted basis, right? Like somebody who delivers you copier paper is not that interesting. Somebody that is managing your payroll, well, that's that's a lot more sensitive, right? So. Your level of scrutiny uh, is is going to be much higher, and and you know if, you, if you've got a payroll provider, you are you know you are doing the obligatory questionnaire, you're doing the external risk uh, scanning and assessment, you're probably doing some benchmarking from uh, external observables. You're going to be sending in the goon squad, right, with clipboards and their fine grained assessments. You might be doing data center tours, uh, as valuable as those are or aren't these days. But what's been a little bit elusive is the instrumentation. And, and I think the area that you're going to see more activity in the industry on, uh, and certainly we're participants in this, is on the active instrumentation of security uh, in some of these companies, getting more of an inside view of how they're performing. You know, the analogy here is in the automotive space, right? If it's, it's worth something to me if I'm an insurer and I'm writing you a car insurance policy I'm going to give you a break if I've got a box inside your car that is able to actually see how you're doing, what kind of driver you are, right? I, I think for certain kinds of companies, this is going to be a more and more attractive proposition to actively instrument you know, the inside view of how companies are doing. So that's our, our view on this is that this is going to be more of a fixture, um, not necessarily widespread, but it's going to be very important in certain cases. And certainly in the risk transfer space in insurance, we, we view this as something that's going to be important uh, to enable insurers to, to write policies that are more profitable, more accurate, and frankly, that, that give customers that are doing the right thing a, um, a better policy that, that is more commensurate with the risk they're taking and, and priced better as a result. You mentioned uh, Complex, a company you work for and I work with. And uh, the work that you do both in the, in the cyberspace and in the insurance space, I guess the question is, so what's the secret sauce and what has changed to allow a, a company like Complex, a startup, to be able to effectively you know, assess and manage these risks that, uh, that didn't exist uh, you know, five years ago, let's say? It's probably worth noting what hasn't changed, right? Before we talk about what has changed, right? I was at an insurance conference a couple months ago, and I've always paid attention to cyber insurance, but I've I've never really given it a lot of a, a lot of credibility because it struck me as being very questionnaire laden and and not that insightful, right? But I, I asked a very naive question. I was sitting at lunch with somebody who was an underwriter, 
And so, so, so walk me through the underwriting process. How does this work? Right. And she says, Oh, well, you know, when we, when we bring on a new client, we, we send them a security questionnaire and we want them to fill it out. And it's, you know, usually 20 questions or 50 questions or whatever it is. Um, we do a, in, in the pre-bind phase, you know, we'll do a vulnerability scan of their external perimeter. Post-bind, we'll, we'll do some tabletop exercises around how they're going to handle certain situations and we'll do uh, you know, regular uh, vulnerability scans of their perimeter, right? And and I said, I said, oh, okay, is that it? Yeah, that's pretty much the process. And you know, I I thought to myself, and I thought, well, 15 years ago, that's kind of what we were doing. And 15 years later, there there's more regularity and definition about tabletops and vuln scans and things like that. But it's fundamentally questionnaire, vuln scan, tabletops, right? You know, to quote Jack Nicholson, what if this is as good as it gets, right? Well, I I, th- I think our our view, frankly, is that it can be better than that, right? And so, you know, we we look at instrumenting your directory. We look at uh, in at at providing instrumentation over some of your network telemetry and some of your security tooling from the inside. I think that's ultimately the the value prop that we think is the the longer term play here. With with many of the insurers, we think they can they can be more profitable. That their um, that their ability to cover given risks is going to be more knowledge based and insightful based on increased telemetry and data. I think that's our our point of view on things. And a, as we uh, as we continue to move ahead, you're going to see more of a more of a story from us about some of those capabilities. So that's without you know letting the cat out of the bag. There, I would just say that. To me, that is the is the secret sauce. Um, more and better, accurate data about the internal workings of your security uh, security teams, your security operations, your environment should enable insurers to make more profitable underwriting decisions as they move forward in the cyberspace. It's hard, right? This is a hard problem. Cyber is hard. Enterprises are different. Trying to pin this stuff stuff down is a is a hard problem, but. I do think we're going to take, we're going to see incremental steps. Some of them are going to be baby steps. Some of them are going to be big steps as we try to get our arms around it. And certainly just speaking as a numbers guy and a guy who who, uh, has spent a fair bit of his career looking at metrics, um, we have to get better at this because it's, you know, the the days of kind of self-assessing ourselves and feeling like we're actually that insightful. I, I think those days are going to start to pass us by. You know, how do you how do you feel on an enterprise wide basis? How do you feel you're doing with with vulnerability management? Oh, I feel I'm doing great. You know, like you know, I think that that was the question I was trying to get away from 15 years ago, and I think we're still asking it. So we're going to do better. We have to. Andy Jakewith, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on Security Ledger about complex and uh, ransomware and security metrics. Paul, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to a Spotlight edition of the Security Ledger podcast sponsored by Complex. Your business is more complex than ever. You need tools to tame that complexity. Complex's advanced algorithms, simulations, and machine learning tools help the world's most demanding firms solve the toughest challenges in cybersecurity, insurance underwriting, and finance. Find out what Complex can do for you at complex, that's Q-O-M-P-L-X, dot com.